Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, August the 6th, 2023. He is known as one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals, at least according to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the author of, of many books, an astonishing number of books, embarrassing from my point of view with my four or five books. He's also prolific in film and television. He's quite a guy, and he's been on, te- uh, he's been on Keen On many times, first when it was on TechCrunch. Uh, Douglas Rushkoff was on in 2013, talking about his book, uh, present shock then he was on back in 2015 still on TechCrunch, and now as a, a lit hub show he's been on back in 2019 talking about democracy and technology he was on in 2021 talking about technology and capitalism and he was on uh, recently earlier this year talking about the escape fantasies of tech billionaires which was uh, all about his new book a big hit as always with his book uh, survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, and he's joining us once again. It's always an honor uh, to have uh, Douglas Rushkoff on the show. Doug, can we join the dots here back from 2013 for the last 10 years? You've been one of my frequent guests. In terms of joining the dots of establishing a narrative, you've always done a very good job. How would you join those dots in the history of technology between 2013 and 2023? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, in 2013, I just wrote the book uh, Present Shock. And what I was arguing there was that, you know, the future is now and that digital technology uh, had really changed the way we, we relate to narrative itself. You know, and there I kind of broke down what digital technology um, as an environment does to us and how we had moved from an analog environment of stories with beginnings, middles and ends and some sense of continuity. Um, so some some uh, understanding of life as you set a goal and then you work towards that goal and then get that goal. And, you know, that that digital technology, because it wasn't analog, it was pulsed. It was, you know, you're not watching a second hand go around the clock. You're just, you know, 207, 208, 209. It was just this pulsed way of moving through um, the world that it had had kind of collapsed our understanding of narrative and put us in a, a, a kind of a confused state where we were going to try to connect dots rather than make real sense. And we would connect things that maybe not weren't going to be connected. So I was concerned at the time that the people that were in what was called the Tea Party movement, which was a very kind of impatient right wing uh, movement, that they were going to move increasingly into conspiracy theory because they were so desperate for a story that they would rather there be someone bad running things than that this is just a, 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 a stuff happens uh, reality. So I, I explained how they were doing something I called fractal noia, where they're trying to connect things in a paranoid way and how that would lead to apocalypto. And I guess uh, what happened was, was that, that over the, over the, the next 10 years, 
um, technologists and tech industry, you know, investors and all doubled down on what they were doing, which was, you know, what I wrote about in the last book, which is just earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they were creating by earning money and using technology in that way. So they would build stuff, but make sure their kids went to Rudolf Steiner schools and lived on, you know, organic goat farms to avoid that, all that stuff where um, the rest of us were swimming in this, um, uh, you know, all the stuff that everyone's uh, uh, eventually written about. So I think we, we became untethered. I think we're, we're uh, very confused where we're in a state of almost, uh, I don't even what to call it, pre-traumatic stress disorder where we're, uh, you know, anxious and, and, and depressed and looking to make sense and, and looking in all the wrong places, um, for it. But I think we may have finally gotten to that place now where people are willing to say, oh, I get it. This isn't working for me anymore. So you see tons of people are turning to, you know, the, the psychedelics and mushrooms or back to nature or permaculture and, you know, local businesses, worker owned cooperatives. So I think people are realizing that that um, they've got to get their feet back on the ground, that this these digital spaces, while extremely powerful, um, they're not conducive to um, uh, to good um, sense making, to good decision making, to good relationships. That you know, we've got to look at these things more like we look at antibiotics or other strong medicines. These are powerful technologies, but they're not where you really want to spend the majority of your time. Maybe the title of your, your next book, there's always another Rushkov book, will be The Untethering of America. Looking at these 10 mm. years, back in 2013, Doug, of course, Facebook was at its height. Twitter was in its pomp. Uh, we just had the beginnings, I think, of TikTok. Uh, we had Instagram, Dominant. How central is the history of social media to this untethering of America? Well, the untethering of the world, not just America. You know, I would, I don't like to overblame social media. You know, I, I blame social media a lot in an almost media deterministic way for, for a number of years. And I remember writing around 2011, why I'm leaving Facebook, because what they do and their practices, uh, you know, the, the, all the, a lot of the bad stuff they were doing even then. Um, and then it's funny when the social dilemma movie came out on Netflix, I, something just switched in me where I felt like, Oh, look how they're, you know, making, making human beings sound, uh, so easily manipulated that, Oh, here are these master, you know, technology engineers and, you know, at Facebook and Snapchat using, you know, uh, behavioral finance to develop algorithms that section people off and manipulate them and get them to, you know, join riots and do crazy things against their, their better interests. And I, I don't know, it, st it started to make me feel like that it, it was a picture of humanity as just so uh, in a, in a, passive Pavlovian state ready to be manipulated. Facebook shows them the color red and oh no, there they go. It was a little bit kind of devil made me do it stuff that reminded me of the documentaries in the 70s and 80s about oh does violence on television lead to violent children? And you know, I I 
I kind of almost reached that peak where I, I don't look, I, I look at, at social media more as a, as a symptom than as, as the cause that, yeah, it's a fractious environment and it does tend toward the sensational and the, and conflict and, um, and people barking at each other, but it's a symptom of, you know, dare we say it's a symptom of capitalism. It's a symptom of an economic system that's trying to extract value from people by any means necessary. Um, so, you know, if that's if that's our model and that's what we agree are the 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 ground rules of this game we call, you know, American life. Um, then of course you're going you're going to get that. But I kind of I'm, I'm looking at the problem as kind of earlier um, up or further upstream than uh, than just these technologies. Doug, you mentioned uh, social uh, the social dilemma. The movie came out in 2020, but you talked about leaving Facebook in 2011. So you were an, an early uh, refusenik on 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 social media. What happened in 2011 for you? Um, it was around the time, I mean, it wasn't, and there's a few things. I mean, first, over the whole, uh, from really 2000 on, I realized my experiences of the internet were not positive. You know, in the early 90s and mid 90s, I would go online and do email and go on the well. It was a, a, a bulletin board of conversations. And I would when I would sign off, I would feel invigorated. My mind had been open. You know, I met new people. I had a discussion with a kid in Japan about, you know, uh, Evangelion. And, um, was that be- social? I mean, going back to the well, you were an early and that was the, yeah. the ideal community. Was that a social media platform? Do you think of the yeah. The whole internet. I mean, this is what I wrote. I mean, some people credit me with inventing the term social media, in fact, because it was in the in the mid 90s. Then I said, oh, no, the internet is a social media, you know, and it keeps fighting off infections, whether it's the infection of government and military or the infection of corporatism. You know, at the at the end of the dot com boom, I was like, yay, you know, year 2000, the dot com crash. And I realized people lost money, but I felt like, oh, the 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 social internet can return. The social medium has reasserted itself. Um, so, yeah, these were all social email was social. Uh, Usenet and IRC were all social channels. It's the 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 things like Facebook, to my mind, were less social, but they were more um, self-branding sites. The difference on the well, you might have one line of profile of who you are, but who you are is what you do, is what you're sharing, what you're saying. On sites like Facebook and MySpace, the idea was to create homepages that represented who you are, except instead of actually making a homepage about dogs or kites or storm chasing or whatever it is that you do in whatever style you do it, you followed the cookie cutter um, instructions. And who you were was what movies do you like? What movie stars? What songs do you listen to? So you really created a consumer profile of yourself and put that as who you are. That was the mirror that you used to sort of uh, uh, see, to decide who you are and represent yourself to the world. So there was much less actual activity between people and much more assertion of this is me and that's me and this is me. So the conversations that resulted from that were always about um, uh, uh, some assertion of self or or, or a present uh, self-presentation. 
as opposed to actual engagement and touching antennas with other people to find to find stuff out. You still see that, you know, oh, you tweet on Twitter, you know, and especially if you're in a kind of a political group or an ideological group, and it's not to connect to others, it's for others to acknowledge and confirm, yes, what you said, I'm going to like it, I'm going to comment on it, I'm going to, you know, and that's, and that's not... Yeah, so it's almost a... A digital Cartesianism. It's a way of proving that you exist. Right. And I get it because it, and it's hard to know you exist, particularly if, you know, well, in COVID, it was really hard. If you don't have other people, if you don't have social relationships, if if all you really have is your consumption, it's your Netflix and your Walmart and your Costco, wherever you go. Um, yeah, it's really hard because human beings, their identities are are. Um, expressed through community and relationships. That's why I wrote, you know, before this last book, I wrote a book called Team Human, arguing that being human is a team sport. And that while these technologies may have been invented in the 90s to help people connect and function more like the team that we are, that's that red one up there, or, <laughs> um, we we use them for the opposite. You know, we use them instead to um, to to isolate, you know, the the the, the main effect of, you know, that's what the social dilemma was trying to show. It doesn't bring people together. It isolates you. It's creating these, uh, um, you know, uh, um, basically Skinner boxes of, of psychological control. And I don't think they work as well as what social dilemma is arguing, but I do think they erode their main feature is to erode our um, more organic social mechanisms. You know, it makes it, uh, the world that we live in is one where, I mean, the actual next book I was thinking to write was a borrow a drill. You know, it's, it's really hard for people today. If you need to put a hole in the wall, you know, and you live in America, chances are you're going to go to the home Depot and buy a minimum viable product drill for 39 bucks. It, you know, is some little rechargeable piece of crap that they sent a kid in the Congo into a mine to get the cobalt or the rare earth metals and manufacture this thing in China using something uh, certainly close to slave labor and ship it over here. You use a drill, maybe twice, stick it in the garage. And, and the next time you pull it out, it's not even going to work and you throw it out and it gets shipped over to Brazil into some, you know, waste heap where some other children are mining it for, for more uh, renewable energy. When you could have just gone over to your neighbor's house, gone to Bob's house and said, you know, can I borrow a drill? You know, and we're so reluctant to do that because if you ask Bob for the drill, Chances are Bob's going to want to come over and drill the hole for you. He's actually going to be because he wants to make sure you get a stud. You know, and if Bob comes over and drills the hole for you to hang up your picture, now what do you owe Bob? You know, now if you have a barbecue the next weekend and Bob lives down the block and he smells the bar, don't you kind of have to invite Bob over to the barbecue? Now, if you invite Bob over to the barbecue, well, other people on their block are going to be like, wait a minute, you know, Doug's having a barbecue, he invited Bob. You might have to invite everyone on the block. And then what? Then you've got this block party, right? And all these people become your friends. You know, that's the fear, right? We're, we're, we're not loath to lend stuff to other people. We're afraid to borrow something, to take from someone Some else. people might see it as a fear. Some people might see it as an opportunity, a promise of making friends with your neighbors. Of course it. I mean, but very, very few of us do, right? And that's 
I don't, I don't blame social media for that. Social media is a symptom of that. It's a safe, titrated way for people to interact with each other or that feels like one compared to actually meeting the other people in the real world. But the real world, this is where, where human beings have the home field advantage against all of these nefarious players. It's where what Elon Musk says doesn't matter if you own your town with your with your with your community you know that 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 these 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 everything uh on there on the tv and on the and on the net matters less when you have a knit community fabric that you're a part of and you shouldn't feel guilty for doing that either because the more that your community takes care of itself then the less of a burden you are on the whole system the less uh um uh, brittle our supply chains are when you're sourcing your food locally. I mean, it's, it, it has a, a, a set of, of corresponding second order effects that actually reduce the power at the top. Yeah, in a way, it comes back to Jaron Lanier's old book, Who Owns the Future? We certainly don't. Let's go back to 2011, hmm. Doug. Um, real history, not just digital history. Yeah. You've always been a very political writer and engaged politically, political activist. To what extent do you see that period as being the um, the, the aftermath of the of, of the Occupy movement um, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Arab Spring? How influential do you think the failures of those movements maybe occupy didn't fail certainly the arab spring did and the promise of social media uh that was articulated by a lot of so-called silicon valley futurists and optimists in 2009 2010 how did that shape not just the world but your own thinking about all this um what's interesting i was really hopeful about occupy um, largely because, I mean, it was funny, and I was writing about um, what ended up being, uh, uh, you know, Occupy in, in, in present shock as well. Um, I, was, I was interested in Occupy as a response to present shock, right? So if you're stuck in the moment, right, if you no longer have these narratives, if you no longer have, you know, Martin Luther King with the eye on the prize, and we're going to march together towards that goal, and perhaps an ends justifies the means journey to um, liberation. If you're in the moment, then what do you do? You know, and Occupy seemed to be an answer to that, that what you do is rather than struggling towards something, you create a new normative state in the present, you actually do the thing. And I, when I wrote about Occupy then, I was trying to say, you know, that the reason why CNN and everyone were having such a hard time with Occupy is because Occupy wouldn't state their goals. What do you want? They would just, they, it was like a new normative behavior. They just did it. We're going to occupy, re, I called it Occupy reality, that we are actually going to occupy this space and live in this present together. Um, and it was, it was powerful. It was really Occupy in that way was coming to the call that Obama set up when he said, we are the change we've been waiting for. You know, it is now, now. Um, he didn't live true to that, right? He went straight to Goldman and tried to figure out some policies to help keep things going. But, but the people who wanted 
who believed what he was talking about were the people who actually um, did Occupy. And Occupy also, it was the moment of the original moment of Bitcoin and crypto, where we saw um, crypto was the answer. Crypto was almost like tech support for the Occupy movement. If we don't want to be part of Wall Street's money system, where you're borrowing these financialized instruments that extract value from them in order for you to even use them, you know, that's what money is. Money is the, the growth mandate of our economy is programmed into interest-bearing currency. The idea was if we had crypto or some way of using these technologies to verify transactions with each other, then we don't need that. We can have like time dollars or a let system or some trading thing where now we're verified. We can trade with people we don't know. Um, and of course, what happened? It became, it, 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 capitalism is really good at this. Speculators are good. They said, oh no, this is actually a new asset class. Let's use this to bet. You know, Let's use this to speculate. So the crypto story kind of got away from us. But yeah, there was this moment I would, in, in 2011 when there was a real resurgence of the original cyberpunk, cypherpunk and, and how you, you mentioned cyber, how, how central do you think social media was in the Occupy movement itself? I mean, people like Clay Shirky suggested it was an important piece, although I think he may have a different opinion now. Um, yeah, it was a it was a tool. You know, that my favorite thing on uh, I don't know if you call it social media or not. My favorite. um uh internet-y part of Occupy was there was a website that you could go to that had streaming media from each of the Occupy encampments, from everyone that they could get to participate. So you'd go and there's like 60 different places and you could see a camera of what's going on at that Occupy encampment at that moment. You know, and I did a conference that coincidentally was in through the first weeks of Occupy. I was doing a conference in New York about taking back the net. It was called Contact. And the, the idea was 2011. The idea was we would kind of fold the weird fringes of the net back into the center, that it was it was time. And we I, I raised some money from Pepsi to give awards. So we gave these $10,000 awards to projects. And one of them was to the Freedom Tower, which was this um, basically it was a way of bringing uh, a Wi-Fi to an Occupy encampment. You know, it was, it was at the time, it was it was more compl complicated to do than, than, uh, than it is now. But it was basically a, a you know, a Wi-Fi tether for, uh, uh, for a, 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 you know, a group of a, a thousand people in a particular location. Um, so th there, there was a social component to it. But I would argue the, the power of Occupy is that it was embodied, that people brought their bodies to a place and co-located and kind of reclaimed, um, reclaimed public space in the way that the original rave movement, which people think was just kids getting high and doing uh, electronic music dancing, but it wasn't. It was actually the reclamation of public spaces and map points and, okay, they're going to have this party in this place. Um, so it was it was more that that uh, we don't need a nightclub. We don't need uh, mission prices. We don't need, you know, that in order to in order to have fun together. It was a decommodified um, uh, entertainment space and occupied kind of that. Do you think that I mean, there are lots of frauds of social media, but the biggest fraud, the biggest trick was Zuckerberg and others, maybe even the Twitter people presenting 
social media as public space when in fact it was private. We've had Talia Stroud on the show from University mm. of Texas. Uh, uh, she works with Eli Parisa on the ideal of digital public space. Is that the biggest tragedy in social media and the internet in the period that you and I have been talking over the last 10 years, this privatization of digital space in the language of, of, of the public, or which of course is the reverse. Yeah, I mean, the internet, as I experienced it, even before I knew what this word was, the, the internet was a commons. The way the internet worked, for uh, the way the computers worked, for those of us who were around in the 70s and 80s in the early days, it was there was one processor somewhere and everyone who had a terminal was sharing cycles of the processor. So if you wanted to run a program, you had to find time, you would borrow time on the processor to run your program. So the ethos of the internet as these networks develop were about how do we share these resources most efficiently with each other. The network itself was understood as a shared resource. That's why things were free. That's why when you made a program, usually it was a program to help people share resources or share information. So all these programs, the email program was Eudora, you know, or, or, or Mosaic, or it was the web browser. They, they, these were all shareware. They were all free programs because they were developed in schools as part of, of building out this commons together. And you're right. Once it became privatized, once those first ads came up and it was like, this is a for-profit endeavor um, you know, everything, of course, everything changed. Then the object of the game was how do we use these technologies to extract money from living humans rather than um, how do we all use these technologies together? And, you know, you talk about the commons and people still quote these, 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 these asinine, you know, ridiculous ideas like the tragedy of the commons, which was written by a eugenicist white supremacist, right? And an admitted one. Um, it, 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 who's it, that? Who, who's that? The, 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 the guy who came up with tragedy of the commons. Um, I thought it was a uh, woman. No, ultimate. No, no, that was, uh, I mean, I, there's that too, but no, she, um, she has a, another uh, 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 tragedy. Do tragedy of the commons um <laughs> eugenics um eugenics movement and you'll see um harden um garrett harden was the guy mm. a racist eugenicist nativist and islamophobe um who came up with the tragedy of the commons yeah that was the essay he wrote this essay in in science that he basically, and I get it, if you see all humans as selfish herders, right? If you buy the libertarian ideal that this is a competition between individuals for the survival of, of the, the fittest individual, then of course you're going to move into that. Well, the commons is, is a ridiculous idea. The commons is not. The commons is just we're going to, um, uh, we're going to guard a resource together and enforce a set of rules about it. So like there's a lake and it only has so much fish 
okay, we're going to guard this thing and you're only allowed to get this many fish from the lake in a given year. So everyone who comes and fishes is going to have to have an ID card and we're going to punch a hole in the ID card every time you, you leave to count how many fish you have. And when you've used up all the fish, that's all the fish you're allowed to have. You know, or grazing uh, 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 grass. You can bring your cows here to graze, but only so many cows over so much time because everyone's got to get their cows fed. And if you don't, if you have more cows that can be, you can't have more cows than can be fed on our common patch of soil. You know, and the, the enclosure of the commons was just that. It was the privatization of public lands by private chartered monopolies in the late Middle Ages. It's the period I always write about. And we really did that to the Internet. The Internet was a commons that we enclosed and we created these. I mean, usually through fear, you know, the things like AOL and Facebook and and these these networks, they were for people who were afraid. They were told, oh, no. The internet is a wild, wild west. It's scary out there. Hackers are going to get you and people are going to show you porn, you know, or something bad's going to happen to you. So come into our private thing, pay us money and we'll keep you safe from them. Right. But it turned out not to be safe at all. These are the ones that sold us to Cambridge Analytica and and. Uh, used the you know the at least the best that they had. The you most you mentioned uh, Cambridge Ana Analytica, Doug. Um, I want to move forward a little bit. Were there moments between 2013 and 2023 where you just sat back and thought, "Wow, I, even I didn't expect anything as outrageous as this"? Was the 2016 election, for example? Um, I did a show uh, yesterday with I, I'm sure you know him, uh, Tobias. Um, Tobias uh, uh, Rose Stockwell, he has a new book out on the internet as an outrage machine. Right. He believes 2016 is when he woke up specifically. You mentioned Cambridge Analytica. Was there a moment in between 2013 and 2023 when you suddenly thought to yourself, oh, my God, this is even worse than me at my most pessimistic, my most dystopian imagine? Yeah. Um well, what's weird? I mean, I had a few moments. I mean, my original moment was when Wired magazine came out in 1993 and said, "This is a business opportunity. You know, we're going to have a long boom. That the internet is here to save capitalism." I was like, "Uh oh, um, that's a different story." Um, right. So there was that moment. There was the moment that Netscape went public. You know, when they when they sold that as a public company, and it was like, "Wow!" And that was the same day that Jerry Garcia died. And I always took that as a strange sign that the, the 60s values of the net were now going to be left behind for these corporate values. Um, and then the dot-com crash. And it was really the AOL Time Warner merger. In yeah, that was an incredible memo. What was that? 1999. That yeah. was when and I got asked to write the op-ed for the New York Times on what that meant. And I said, oh, it means that Steve Case is cashing in his chips and the dot-com boom is about to become a dot-com bust. And they said, we can't publish that. Everyone in the business section says you're insane. You know, of course, three months later, it turned out to be exactly, uh, exactly what it meant. Um, but in the, in the time that you're talking about, you know, in the, the 2013 to like 2017, I mean, honestly, the fact that Trump got elected was pretty shocking to me that, that to me felt like we had gotten um, discombobulated, you know, and it was, I mean, it was for a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, I would argue 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I don't want to be. You can say wherever you like on my show. Oh, right. On this show. Yeah. I just want to, I think you're allowed to say it. I would argue that, that what happened there, the real story of what happened there was the Hillary Clinton campaign was resisting the positive side of the internet, which was the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, the Bernie Sanders campaign organized in a different way, in a sort of a bottom-up way that would have produced a majority in the party if they hadn't, if the, the Democrats hadn't said, oh no, we have a way to prevent an insurgency from within, and that's we have superdelegates. We don't have to listen to the majority of Democrats. And when we do our when we do our uh, uh, primaries, we can pick, you know, which is what they decided to do. And I feel like they resisted um, the very best version of Clay Shirky's Here Comes Everybody. You know, and I didn't like Here Comes Everybody. I was kind of mad at, at Clay about that because Here Comes Everybody meant everybody thinks they can write. Everybody thinks they can do this. You know, the the there was no more expertise there. They they there's no more disciplines. There are no more academics. It's like, oh no, it's this populist madness. But the the Bernie campaign had a here comes everybody quality that I think frightened um, powerful elites on the left, and they really they didn't let it happen. And that's what I I feel that was as responsible um, for Trump as anything else. Everybody saw how the Hillary Clinton campaign operated. You know the the only emails that you ever got from the Hillary Clinton campaign that I did anyway were invitations to events that I couldn't afford to go to. You know, oh, you pay a thousand dollars and you could meet Chelsea. You know, I'm like, what? How is how is this my people's workers party? You know, where what happened here? Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have uh, if you paid me a thousand dollars. I wouldn't have wanted to meet Chelsea. Um, what about the yeah, Cambridge Analytica nice scandal yeah. though? Uh, when when it became clear that social media companies or tech companies like Facebook were bound up in a, in a way that's still not entirely clear mm. in the election. What did you make of that when it did that just confirm your worst fears or were you surprised? Um, it confirmed a fear that, that this has nothing to do with the tech and everything to do with the business plan. You know, when when I remember people were always scared about hackers and hackers hacking into systems and all that. And I know that's a real fear and we need cybersecurity. It's really it's really difficult. But the 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 Cambridge Analytica hack was not a technology hack, but a business model hack. They hacked Facebook's business model. Right. And the business model of the net. Um, And that was what I was like, oh, um, this still goes back to capitalism and the way that business works and the way these companies need to 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 grow um that sort of the move fast and break things ethos is really one of how do we get hockey stick growth and maintain it um so i started to see the internet less as these powerful technologies and more as these kind of bars and restaurants that were in hock to the mob you know that once you sell your restaurant to the mob, then the restaurant itself is no longer about the food, right? You're just running money through it, and that's what I started to realize. These social networks were just the the names on debt, and how does money run through them? And the business model 
of the of the the way the API of, of Facebook work was really just that was a, a was something that Cambridge could come and say, oh, um, we can use their we can use their model this way. Doug, I promised you we wouldn't have a, a Joe Rogan style ninety minute interview. So <laughs> uh, let's let's move to the end. Before we went live, you were suggesting to me that you thought there was some some new energy once again, history repeating itself. Um, what do you make of the Web three term and the attempt in a in a in a post Twitter Facebook world to reinvent social media with platforms like? Blue Sky, Mastodon. Is there anything there or is it just more of the same? I mean, there's anything there. I mean, I think I think Web3 came too soon in social history after Web2 for people not to see what it is. Right? There's 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 Web1, people are doing business and then when all those people are competing, you know, against each other, they invent Web two. You know, and that's what Tim O'Reilly and 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 someone else called it. Web two was a way to sort of level up. So you're not going to compete down here with all these people. Web two is you're going to aggregate all the Web ones. And when when Mark Zuckerberg realizes that Facebook's reached the peak of its hockey stick, he can't grow anymore. He goes, "Oh, I'm going to leave Web two and do Web three. Right, and he takes a bunch of terms like crypto and virtual reality, and you know, throw them all together, and that's going to be this new thing, the Web three thing, that's going to then sort of aggregate and level up from there. It's what Peter Thiel wrote, wrote about in his book, from zero to one. The idea is you want to be one order of magnitude above where everybody else is competing. So you name the next thing, you level up, and you're there, and. I feel like we just did Web 2 and we look at Web 3 and we go, oh, there's a bunch of buzzword, 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 AI, crypto, VR, Web 3. That's going to be bigger than Web 2. So we got to get there. And I think when in that switch, I think there's an, a moment of opportunity for people to go, Ugh, I'm not getting on that ride. I re I'm just not going on that ride. There are always false promises. It never works out. We're not driving around in autonomous vehicles. It's just, it's another way of trying to raise money for a boondoggle moonshot X prize nonsense. And the only thing that makes at least me, the only thing that makes me happy is being in real place with other people, touching people, laughing with people, being with people, you know, walking down, getting a coffee. It's like it's the, the happiness of life is so simple that to generate the necessary time, energy and money to participate on that, get the right goggles and the right crypto and the right. The, I just don't I don't care. And it's not just that I'm old. It's that um, it's, it's exhausting and unnecessary and not even fun. Um, so I feel like I'm hopeful that people are seeing the, the, the other way. It's like, I'm, I'm glad we live in a world with Lexapro and Prozac and Wellbutrin and all these things to help people cope with the depressing, depleting nature of end-stage corporate capitalism amplified by digital technology. But um, have you tried mushrooms instead, right? It's the it's almost the opposite strategy. Instead of um, insulating myself from the social and psychological harm 
and having a way to still maintain my utility value to go on in that way. Mushrooms and some of these alternative ways of, of dealing with stress kind of open your window to open the window of possibility, open your window of confrontation so that you can see, Oh, wait a minute. I'm part of a bigger system here. And, and uh, it, it's like, you can heal your stomach in two ways, right? You can take the pill to make the pain go away, or you can start addressing your gut biome, right? And start dealing with all the bacteria, start seeing the system in there. And I feel like more and more people are willing to look, to pull back and look systemically at what's going on. Where is our faith? Where are our social relationships? How are we relating to the ground beneath our feet? Where's our food coming from? Where's our air coming from? And willing to entertain permaculture and biodynamics and social relationships and the phases of the moon and the, 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 the actual social contact that we need. And, and I feel like that, that this Web3 moment is an opportunity for people to say, oh, do I want to prepare for more and more virtual reality or do I want to you know, let people go play there? But I want to I want to take this opportunity to engage in, in reality, reality. And I'm and, and the people I know are more into that. I'm starting to do theater again, local theater. What is that? You know, that, that's that's encouraging. 